this episode, I'm joined once again by writer and occultist John Michael Greer to discuss the life and work of Dion Fortune alongside a discussion on his recent release of a commentary on Dion Fortune's The Cosmic Doctrine. I'd like to say a big thank you to all my paying patrons and subscribers. And if you'd like to keep the podcast running, then please find links for the Patreon in the description below. Otherwise, please enjoy. So, John Michael Gray, thanks once again for joining us on Hermetics Podcast. Thank you for having me on. Uh, we are going to be discussing. Well, I've, I've got. We're going to be discussing a newly released book, uh, mm-hmm. which is from Aeon, so I should say before we get started, a uh, big thank you to Aeon for sending me a copy, uh, a commentary on the cosmic doctrine, understanding Dion Fortune's masterpiece of spiritual creation and evolution. Now, in a sense, to say it, it is a new book, but the content itself uh, was a long, long process of, like, it, it, it evolved from a long process of blog posts on Echosophia. Mm-hmm. Which, which in turn evolved from some decades of studying the book that Dion Fortune wrote back in the 1930s. So yeah, there's this kind of a long lead time leading into this process. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now I've sort of, as per usual, you know, there is some questions on the cosmic doctrine itself and on the actual commentary. Now to a certain extent, I thought, well, I don't want to just sort of go over the content of the book, which itself mm-hmm. is basically impossible to go over like... As, as we are, as we'll get to that, we'll get to that. And I realized, you know, there is needed some, some sort of foundation, I think, to speak about Dion Fortune. And also, because mm-hmm. there's a, there's a few things she draws on, which you'd go, hang on, mm-hmm. what, 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 what do you mean it? What do you mean she didn't really write it? You know, where did it really come from? Sort of thing. Um, and I, I but, but the, the place I want to start in a way is why I was really excited to have this chat with you, which is, I personally think Dion Fortune, doesn't really get a look in anymore, mm-hmm. which which is astounding because uh, I mean when I when I was a younger man and just getting active in the occult scene, Dion Fortune was everywhere. Um, everyone in the occult community read her books. Everyone in the neo pagan community read her books. You could drop a passing reference to um, her novel, The Sea Priestess, sort of something out of um, the ma- the mystical Kabbalah or what have you, and everyone would instantly know what what you were talking about. Oh yeah, it's the unfortunate. Mm-hmm. But yeah, she seems to have dropped out of out of the public, out of the, the the imagination of the certainly of the occult scene. I don't think she ever had much of a foothold in the broader community. No. Any? Do you have any reason why? Because, like you said, I mean, you look at her work, and there's such a. Not only do we have an astounding, but like, I, in preparation for this, I read your own book, and I was also reading anyway. Um, the unfortunate in the inner light. Uh, the bi- mm-hmm. sort of, I think, it's really one of the the only real biography we have. Um, and it's mm-hmm. just pretty thorough. But I mean, on the one hand, we have someone who is, you know, completely. She's meeting so many different famous occultists. She has an, an extremely eventful life and then we have the Mm -hmm. theoretical stuff and then we have the literature and there's so much there Mm -hmm. i mean why do you think why do you think no one's really too interested anymore well i think partly we had the we had the whole rush into um the whole social justice movement and the habit of judging people in the past as to how well they live up to current Mm -hmm. uh, notions of of fairness and justice and what have you Mm -hmm. Fortune lived at a different time she had the attitudes of her time. She had what counted as very liberal, in fact, practically radical attitudes within the context of her time. But that's not good enough for most people these days. Um, the, you know, the, it's just one of those things. And 
also, she's a convenient target in some ways because, of course, she um, she lived at a time where um, sexuality was an extremely loaded issue mm. in in the British society of her time. She was um, she had relative that was one place where she didn't have quote advanced thoughts unquote, and she said some things that could be could certainly be interpreted as being. Um, What's the, the the buzzword now? Homophobic or what have you? Mm-hmm. And so, as gender issues and as sexual orientation issues took center stage in in sort of um, the, the left wing dialogue of our time, Dion Fortune became more and more of a punching bag because you know where where she had previously, when feminism was such a dominant force, um, she had been rather lionized as an important, influential female thinker and writer of her day, which of course she was. Mm-hmm. But you know, fa- fashions in social in in, in social conscience uh, change like you know fashions in clothing, mm-hmm. and so she went from being fashionable to being distinctly unfashionable. Yeah, the human propensity to constantly just continually every cycle believe you know we, we look you know you mentioned uh, fashions and i mean i guess mm-hmm. clothing fashion is the easier example mm-hmm. we look back at the 80s yeah. with the big bows on the dresses or the flared trousers and we think oh that looks ridiculous but what mm-hmm. i'm we're at, what i'm wearing right now no 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 that will never <laughs> well, that will always be cool not that I was ever cool, but we we don't look at ourselves in that sense. And then, give it mm-hmm. twenty years, I look back to what I was wearing when it, I was in school, and I think, ah, boy. Mm-hmm. It it one of the advantages of age is you can look back at um, the the things you were wearing. You can look back at the television shows and movies and see just how mannered, just how um, how goofy they were. And you know, it's just it's. It's, it's a useful thing, but it's something a lot of people avoid doing because they, they're they're very committed to this or that fashion. It's one of those things. Mm-hmm. But just jumping back already to something you mentioned, it was something that really uh, intrigued me reading the biography. So Dion Fortune, I mean, at this point she would have been Violet Firth, but she begins with um, really, strangely, in psychoanalysis. Uh, psychoanalysis mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, she, you know, with that sort of a sexually emancipative attitude, I was so surprised that she sort of says, "No, no, no, this stuff's really serious. You, uh, you shouldn't sort of just let it out of the box and not really think about this." And you know, she's she was fairly conservative, um, as you said. But that that attitude just amidst who she eventually is is around uh, mm-hmm. Crowley, Regardi, etc. All these people mm-hmm. where where there's this there's this attitude, at least now retrospectively, of a sort of a sexual emancipate you know emancipatory mm-hmm. attitude. She's she's mm-hmm. not really. Uh, She's not really on board with that from from the beginning, I think. Well, certainly in her well, one of the things uh, one of the things that I've learned recently by doing a much more thorough read of a lot of her material. This is for another book project mm-hmm. in, in dealing with her work that is in process right now. Is that a lot of her sexually conservative writing came quite early? Mm-hmm. Um, the, you know, the, the esoteric philosophy of love and marriage was actually one of her first books. It was very early. And if you get into some of the later material, some of the stuff that um, the late Gareth Knight published of recently, um, The Circuit of Force and so on, where she talks about sexuality, she has a much more, a uh, much less conservative. She's still saying, yes, you know, marriage is the best option, but it doesn't work for everybody. <laughs> and, you know, here, here, is, here is this ideal of how sexual relationships should be, and it's an ideal, and it 
doesn't always work. And so I think I think a lot of a lot of what we saw is a sort of um, a sort of idealization of of the, of, cons- of the conservative sexual mores of her time that was very common among young young women in her period. And then gradually, as she got older, she got more experience. She had her own marriage, of course, crash and burn disastrously. And she watched a lot of other people go through their own changes. And she came to the conclusion that, um, well, yes, that's a good thing to aim for, but you may not achieve it. Yeah, let's be realistic. <laughs> let's, be real, let's be realistic here. Uh, you know, it... It, more broadly, you can see this trend all through her writing where she starts out with these, you know, very idealized notions of what what can be or what should be. And then, you know, like most of us, she gains experience with yeah. time and ends up, you know, you end up with, with um, some of the later novels where she's very clear on the complexities of, of human relationships and human sexuality. Mm-hmm. So we're sort of we're sort of talking around her, I guess. I mean, I just ask you the I'll, I'll ask you the <laughs> the basic question. I mean, who was Violet Firth forward slash Dion Fortune? Mm-hmm. Okay, she was um, she was a middle class English woman. <laughs> she, you know, her family her family came was her, she came from a family of Christian scientists. Um, they had connections with the 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 Firth family that's involved um, in Leeds. I think it is in the in the steel work, but in the steel mills, but her family had connections with theosophy, with Christian science, with all the various um, alternative stuff that was going on. She was raised in, in a relatively comfortable circumstances. She was able to um, publish two, two um, chapbooks of poetry when she was still quite small, uh, still mm-hmm. in school, um, titled, of course, Violets and More Violets. <laughs> and uh, the thing is, for kids' poetry, they're not half bad. Mm-hmm. You can see the you can see the writer taking shape here, and she you know she was um, for a while she was very very deeply into Christian mysticism, and as as a as a teenager, and she had various com- various complexities and crises and a nervous breakdown, and that it was the nervous breakdown that pretty much landed her into in the dealing with the um, what was it the psychophysiological clinic in London um, back back in the day when you did not have a doc you don't have to have a doctorate degree to do Freudian therapy. Mm-hmm. And this was in the early days of the psychoanalytic revolution. She started attending as a patient, as, and as happened many, many times, she then proceeded to become a lay analyst. Um, if you look at the at the histories of um, both Freud and Jung, many of their patients ended up becoming students, ended up becoming practitioners. And Fortune was kind of, or Firth as she was then, was kind of along those same lines. But she had a strong interest in magic. She had a strong interest in, in occultism. She was active in the Theosophical Society. She got involved in in some of the successor organizations to the Golden Dawn. She ended up establishing her own organization, which after a few changes became what was then the fraternity of the inner light, now the society of the inner light. And it became a, a self-sustaining thing. It became the you know her, her, her means of support as well as the vehicle for her teaching. And she had a lot of connections in the occult community. She had a lot of students. Um, she had a, a big headquarters building um, at Three Queensborough Terrace in London. She had a retreat center out in Glastonbury and um, spent the rest of her life writing and teaching and practicing magic mm. I mean, and writing novels and doing some other things. <laughs> <laughs> she kept busy. And fighting World War II. Mm-hmm. 
yes. Can't gloss over that. One thing I one thing that makes me laugh reading the biographical stuff, just you know, you mentioned she had a breakdown. I mean, I think I think we should throw in here middle class family and and a woman in this day and age, you know, anything which isn't uh, you know, someone such as Dion Fortune who has this sort of natural intuitive search for certain things, search for truth, she gets sort of quickly shipped off to, you know, a, a typical school for girls who aren't towing the line, basically. So mm-hmm. I, I feel, you know, in these days, oh, she had a nervous breakdown. Is that, is you know, is that because, well, in these in this day and age, if you're not being a proper lady, then off, off you go. That's one possibility. There have been rumors for quite some time that um, there was an illegitimate child involved. I don't know if what, what the status of those rumors is now, but that has been something in circulation for quite some time now that she, as, as you know, as happened. Mm-hmm. Um, again, you know, women at that period, uh, Dorothy Sayers, the mystery writer, had an illegitimate child and had, mm-hmm. to, had to maneuver around that. There were, it happened quite often. And so um, one way or another, um, yeah, she she got shipped off. She spent a while during the during the First World War as a land girl, you know, working mm-hmm. in the fields and so on, and um, published a, a rather charming little book on the cultivation of the soybean. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the next time the next time you have a soy burger, thank Dion Fortune. <laughs> mm. I don't eat soy. Do you eat soy burgers? I don't eat soy burgers. I do. Uh, my 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 stepmother's Japanese American, so I grew up eating tofu. And and other Japanese soy products, and so that's just that's just ordinary home cooking for me. Mm-hmm. But I, I avoid so, soy burgers when I can. I much prefer, you know, actual dead cow and things like that. Actual dead cow. We're, we're entering <laughs> into a new era. Is this actual dead cow? <laughs> Is it actual dead cow, or did it come out of a test tube somewhere? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. So, why is it that because? You when you when you write of and I don't mean about the cosmic doctrine, but when you write of the cosmic doctrine, you you are pretty clear about the fact you consider this the most important occult text of the twentieth century. It's the most important work of occult philosophy of the twentieth yeah, century. Occult the, philosophy. Yeah. Yeah, specifically, it's it's providing the ideas, it's providing the the background framework of an understanding of, of, of occultism, and um, there are other works that, that arguably are more important in terms of practice, but they don't necessarily give the philosophy. So yeah, and there it's 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 far from the only work of occult philosophy in the 20th century. There's actually quite a few of them, and many of them are quite good. But um, my take is that the the cosmic doctrine. Both in terms of its its breadth of vision, in terms of its detail, and in terms of how deep it goes into an understanding of practical occultism and cough cough magic unquote, I think it goes way past um, the the other the other competing documents we have, and it certainly it benefit it is the kind of thing that repays enormous amounts of study. What what other texts would you see as sort of competitors within that era? Okay, within within that within a specific era. Mm. Um, oh, well, I, you, you said the twentieth century, so we'll go the twentieth century. century. Well, but in in terms of the same period, actually, there are, there are some. I'm not a fan, but there are a great many people who who would put Magic and Theory in practice, Al mm-hmm. Scrolli's book, mm-hmm. um, in that same category. Um, w. B. Yeats's book, A Vision. Mm-hmm. Arguably belongs in the same. That's that's one I plan on doing a a series of blog posts on down the road. Um, 
let's see. Many of the others are actually 19th century. Actually, um, Fortune's book, The Mystical Kabbalah, is another mm-hmm. is another competitor. And then, then of course, once you get after the after the Second World War, and we start getting the um, you know the occult um, revival of the 1970s, there's a lot of things being written at that time. But in terms of stuff stuff from that between the war era, those are the ones I would look to immediately. There are also some. Um, I have not had a chance to study the German medical literature, mm-hmm. of which there was quite a bit. Um, I am still just learning my way through the French magical literature. And there we start getting into um, people like Schwaller de Lubitsch, who mm-hmm. was writing amazing occult material. But that's, I'm, I'm still in the early stages of really grappling with, that, with, with his work and that of some of the other, war, some of the other writers of that time. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Now, at the beginning I mentioned that she did write it. Maybe I should say she physically wrote it because i will ask you where did the cosmic doctrine come from okay and that is one that is one of those questions that is insanely difficult to answer what happened was that Dion Fortune and i forget which one of her her co-workers basically channeled it mm-hmm. And they took down. They, they. I think it was Mayor Trenchell Hayes, wasn't it? But at any rate, they took down um, this material in a in a series of of channeling sessions, basically over the course of I think most of two years, and getting it a chunk at the chunk at a time. Now, where does that come from? That's an insanely complicated question. One could be, you know, one one could say, well, it came from the masters or the spirits or the collective unconscious, or it came through Dion Fortune, mm-hmm. and it was powerfully shaped by the things that she knew and the thing, the the ideas and the teachings that were in her mind. If you if you look at um, the writings of her, of her teacher, uh, Dr. Theodore Moriarty, not that Dr. Moriarty, by the way. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, the, somebody needs. We'll, we'll get back to that. But somebody needs to do a mashup where where Dion Fortune actually studied from Sherlock Holmes and Nemesis. But at any rate, so Dr. Theodore Moriarty, if you look at his material, his teachings, and then look at the Cosmic Doctrine, you can see the connections. And then you mm-hmm. can also see because he got most of his, many of his ideas from um, the redoubtable William Walker Atkinson, um, by way of uh, one of Atkinson's pseudonyms, Magus Incognito. <laughs> Um, Atkinson was not subtle. He was not a subtle man at all. But um, Magos Incognito wrote a book called The Secret Teachings of the Rosicrucians. Mm -hmm. And if you start with The Secret Teachings of the Rosicrucians, go from there to Dr. Moriarty and then to Dion Fortune, you can see these same ideas being passed from, from one to another. So the Fortune certainly had some serious influence on on, or, or at least her mind was the quarry from which the spirits of the masters of the collective unconscious gathered much of their raw material. So, As to where it came from beyond that, well, if I were omniscient, I'd be able to tell you. Well, you know what I'm going to ask, just to be annoying. Who are the masters? Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know. <laughs> In theosophical legend... Okay. Okay. This, this this actually gets fun. Um, when when Helena Petrovna Blavatsky came on the scene, 
She insisted that she was in contact with the masters, who were these um, the, the, these occult supermen who um, were lurking around the world, holding on to the to the ultimate secrets of everything. And they were in touch with her, and they through her they worked using telepathic means to help her write her gargantuan books, mm-hmm. Isis Unveiled and the Secret Doctrine. And she insisted they were actually living people. They secluded initiates. Um, her successors in the Theosophical Society decided that wasn't impressive enough, and all of a sudden they become these dis- these discarnate beings, mm. the masters, who are beaming thoughts into your head. Probably not by way of orbital mind control lasers, but <clears throat> the, it, it kind of has that flavor to it sometimes. And what seems to be at the at the bottom of it is that when you enter into certain meditative states, you will have the experience of coming into contact with apparent centers of consciousness that are not part of your own mind. Mm-hmm. Call them archetypes of the collective unconscious, call them spirits or gods or what have you. You know, you can have this experience. And under the right circumstances, or if they decide the circumstances are right, they can start teaching you stuff. And it may not be anything you ever expected. It may not be anything that ever has any place in your mind quite often, in fact. Um, you find yourself taking this stuff down and going, wow. Now, to some extent, this is something that every fiction writer, or many fiction writers, certainly have the, have the experience of with their characters. Mm-hmm. Um, many, I mean, in, in writing my novels, I've often found my characters doing and saying things that I had not anticipated. And some, I mean, I've had situations where a character sat me down and said, no, no, you have this part of the plot completely wrong. <laughs> this is what I want to do here. This is what the other people are going to do. I'm going, uh, okay. Maybe those are the masters. Maybe they're, the, you know, they're, they're fictional characters who have, I mean, maybe Gandalf got loose from the pages of Lord of the Rings and has been, you know, channeling things into people's minds or something. I don't claim to know. But the experience exists. It can be it it can be achieved by anyone willing to to learn how to do the necessary meditative exercises, and if you do that, you can learn some very unlikely things, and you can gain the capacity to do certain unlikely things. Dion Fortune was very heavily involved in this kind of work. She believed that if you were a serious occultist, you had to have some kind of contact with these centers of personality, these masters. Mm-hmm. But what I believe there was like four specific ones they thought it might be for the. So she, she, I think she was in contact with, they at least, one was Socrates, if I'm right in remembering this. One, one she was in contact with, they think yeah, the, Socrates. There was, there, was, there was certainly, yeah, Socrates was in there somewhere. Euclid shows up here and there. Um, Lord Eldon, who was a, a Scottish um, statesman of a couple of hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. Was a significant one. Um, then there was Setne Kamwas, who was a um, a son of a younger son of Ramses II, I think it was, who was a famous Egyptian occultist during his own lifetime, and um, he was involved. And then there was a Spartan king whose name I am not remembering at the moment, mm-hmm. um, and you know it's one of those things you read these and go, okay, certainly these are the names they apparently went by. Mm-hmm. I don't, Cleomenes, that was the Spartan king. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't claim to know mm-hmm. what was actually going on there. I, I mean, I have, I, I have had similar experiences interacting with, with centers of consciousness that, have, that come with names and identities attached, and I have no way of checking whether mm-hmm. these are actually the souls they claim to be. I do know that I can get good information from them sometimes. Mm-hmm. 
I'll be honest. I think if I if I communed with the great masters and it turns out I was chatting to Socrates, I just think, oh, you know, that guy needs to shut up. Uh, <laughs> I forget who it was who said, the more I read about him, the less I wonder that they poisoned him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Finding a reason just to poison this annoying old man who just... Ruining your lunch in the market, you think? Oh, let's, exactly. Let's get rid of it. You know, you're you're just eating a meal, and this guy comes up to you and wants to start talking about the meaning of life. You think, ah, that's a time, that's a time and a place, buddy. You, you know, it is really sad that Monty Python didn't get to, didn't get to work on that. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine what they would have done with the you know with <laughs> Socrates in the in the agora? You know? <laughs> so. Moving into the book, we, you know, I think mm-hmm. that foundation was needed to really, mm-hmm. you know, this is the sort of thing we're dealing with from this mm-hmm. kind of person mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. who is very sincere and very, um, I, I haven't fully worked out Dion Fortune's personality from whatever, she's, um, she escapes, she escapes a lot of stuff, I think, because of that peculiar mishmash of, <laughs> you know, magic and a certain form of conservatism, and, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of things, oh, going, a lot of aspects. This is actually, actually uh, if I may interject something, mm-hmm. magic was conservative in those days. How so? The, one of the weird things that, that, ha- that has happened, one of the weird switches that has happened, is that the 1970s occult revolution, the 60s and 70s, ha- happened on the left wing. Before then, most occultists were on the right. Hmm. If, you know, there was all this fuss made a little while ago, they talk about Gerald Gardner, okay, and he mm-hmm. apparently learned his Wicca from, from Dorothy Clutterbuck. Mm-hmm. And they traced Dorothy Clutterbuck down. She existed, and she was a pillar of the conservative party in her area. <laughs> she was a very, I mean, she wasn't conservative in a religious sense in the, or in a sexual sense, as far as we know, but mm-hmm. she was politically very much a conservative, and that was true of a lot of the other occultists of the time, going back quite some time. People on the left tended to be atheists. They wanted to be con- they were communists and socialists and getting into all this avant-garde, very materialist sort of thing. If you were into spooky stuff, that was conservative. That was old-fashioned. Mm-hmm. And then somehow around the period of around the middle of the 20th century, the signs flipped. Mm. And I mean, the in in the, at the beginning of the 20th century, what we now call fundamentalist Christianity, the hardcore evangelical, um, pulpit-pounding, Bible-thumping, that was on the political left. Mm-hmm. Now it's on the political right, and magic has done the same flip-flop. Why that should be the case is a really interesting question, but it will take mm-hmm. us a long ways away from, from the, of course, the way, what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what we are talking about, and you reiterate this pretty much at the beginning of every section... Uh, and it's an annoying question because the limits of language, as you make clear in your book, mm-hmm. delimit what we're talking about already and allow it to not mm-hmm. be the thing we're going to talk about and ask you about annoyingly, which is what is a symbol and why uh, <laughs> Why do you reiterate at the beginning of every section? And I think it's important to do so to basically like a finger wagging old school uh, schoolmaster say, remember. These are symbols, you know, emphasis on these Mm -hmm. are symbols. These are symbols. They are meant to train the mind, not to inform it. What's the difference? Okay. Um, Most people treat knowledge as something you treat things like something, they're information. They're there too. You you learn this stuff and then you know, you know how the cosmos came into being. No, Mm. you don't. 
this um, the point of doing of let's say let's say you're you're in school and you're do, you're slogging your way through the elements of Euclid. You're learning geometry. The point of that is not to inform you about the um, properties of squares and triangles. It's to teach you a way of thinking. It's to train your mind in following logical inferences. Hmm. Okay, that's one way of mind training. What Dion Fortune is doing is something different. She's having, you know, at each, or Dion Fortune or, or the Masters, whatever, we'll say Dion Fortune just for the sake mm-hmm. of clarity. She's having you imagine, build up certain images in your mind and think about certain things in relationship to those images. And what she's, treat, what she's teaching you through this process, what she is doing, training your mind to do, is to think like a magician. Mm. She's teaching you to associate concepts and images. She's teaching you to to perceive a symbol as something that points beyond itself. Mm. Now, to cycle back to your question, what is a symbol? Um, A symbol is not a sign. Okay, a sign is something where, like, you know, a stop sign or what have you. It Mm. only means what it means. Mm-hmm. Okay, a street sign. It says, "It says, you know, Bletchley Place." Okay, there you are. You're on Bletchley Place. You look at the sign, and that's all that it tells you. A symbol always leads beyond itself. A symbol is more. Uh, the meaning of a symbol can never be strictly defined. Mm-hmm. That's the thing that Carl Jung used to talk about at such length. You can't boil down a symbol to some kind of simple definition. Okay, a symbol is a constellation of meanings that can be understood by the mind represented by some some sensory form. So, for example, the sun is a symbol. What does the sun mean? Well, you know, people have been writing poetry and literature and uh, hymns and mm-hmm. all kinds of other things for thousands of years talking about what the sun means. But it can't be defined. It's simply, it's a symbol. It points beyond itself. And so when Dion Fortune has us imagine um, interstellar space and Im- imagine space starting to flow and producing this this great circular arc of flowing space, that establishes a visual image. That's not a sign. It's not something whose meaning can be defined. It's an image through which it, me- it becomes easier to think about certain things. Mm-hmm. What would happen with your understanding of the book if you didn't pay attention to that? What would the book become? Um, it would become an ideology. Hmm. It would become a set of beliefs, and that's fine, but it just it, it just loses all of its value at that point because then this is this is of course the pervasive problem with religious writings f- from day one. Um, people treat them as things to believe, something to inform the mind there's actually an old an old, an old bit of Welsh legend about that about how how he, um, who was it um Anigan Gaur, the first of all created beings, the, the primordial giant who wrote the wrote down all the secrets of the universe on these three um, these three Rowan staffs, and then the people who came afterwards, instead of reading what was written on the staffs, worshipped them as deities. Uh-huh. Okay, that's what happens if you take this not as a symbol but as a collection of signs. Mm-hmm. You're worshiping the thing instead of learning from it, and that way you lose all of its advantages. Do you think that's what what has become of most institutional religion? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, The Bible. Let's take the obvious one. The Bible, careful study of the Bible will train your mind. 
Um, rabbis have been doing that with the Old Testament since the year dot. Um, Christian mystics have done it for a very long time. It is, in fact, a, it's, it's a brilliant collection of powerful, powerful symbols with enormous amounts to teach. Or you can treat it in the, the, kind of, the kind of dumb way and treat it, oh, this is how the world was formed. And then you have, you know, your church of the Bible. You're worshiping a book. You know, in what way is that different from putting up a statue of, of you know, some god on there? Uh, but, you know, and, it's, and it, loses the whole point. it loses all the value of the thing mm-hmm. by, treating it, uh, by treating the Bible as a geology textbook. So moving into the book, I've sort of outlined four key things, which I hope, you know, we can't go over the whole of the book in this chat, Mm -hmm. but we can give, I think, the basis of the actual cosmological or Mm -hmm. cosmic overview. And then there's a couple of other things I want to draw in the end, which I think are important Mm -hmm. to do with, especially to do with Fortune's own, you know, you mentioned there the Bible, Fortune's own Anglicanism and the position of Mm -hmm. Logos. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. so the four I've sort of outlined is the unmanifest, the rings, evil, because I actually think Fortune's understanding of evil is so so key for, especially for contemporary politics, like anyone Mm -hmm. reading Mm -hmm. it just thinks yeah, everyone needs to read this and understand for it. And then the, the rays of the sun and then sort of limitation. But yeah, we'll get to evil because it is quite funny, and mm-hmm. but no one ever learns from it anyway. But we'll begin with the unmanifest. And mm-hmm. this idea has been around literally since written record of what we consider oh, yeah. magic or spiritualism oh, yeah. with the Egyptians. Mm-hmm. Right? The Egyptians mm-hmm. thought there was this nameless sea which was out, you know, outside of our sphere, which was, you know, the, the, the original source, whatever you want to call it. What is the unmanifest? Mm-hmm. Well, the, the thing is, the unmanifest is that which you cannot define. <laughs> the unmanifest, no, seriously, it's that which it's that which you cannot speak about without making without uh, babbling nonsense. Um, in in a in a sort of um, cognitive sense, the unmanifest is what's real. We using our senses, using our minds pick little details out of the buzzing, blooming confusion of existence. And we use those to construct what we call the world. Mm. And, and you, you, can, you can see the construction, the, one, one of the great, the great example, which I got from Owen Barfield, one of Owen Barfield's books, of course, is that you know, if you, you ever had the experience of waking up in a strange room and for a moment there, you're just surrounded by these weird, meaningless shapes and only when your mind gets a little clear do they go click into pieces of furniture. Mm. Until then, you're in this, this sort of nowhere where nothing means anything and nothing makes any sense. And, and the, you know, the world is slanting at non-Euclidean angles. I'm pretty <laughs> sure that's where Lovecraft got some of his ideas. And, and then your mind puts it into shape. You can see the same thing with the kind of optical illusions that can flip back and forth. It's a duck, it's a bunny, or what have you. If you can learn to make that switch consciously, you can watch your mind assembling the world. But we lose track of that, and we end up thinking of the world as, as just what's in, what, what, what's outside us. Mm. We don't realize that we're helping to construct it. The world as it exists is the unmanifest. The world as we, as we manufacture it with our with our senses and our thoughts and and our wills that's the that's the manifested world and the unmanifest is what's real mm-hmm. the manifest is what we can work with and so there there's that it's it's useful to remember that the word fact literally means something that's been made mm-hmm. 
It's not what's out there anyway. So we can only really know what we make. So there are no facts? Oh, no, there are plenty of facts. We make them all the time. But there are no facts in the way we've defined facts. No, in the, the, no fact, facts are not given to us. The universe does not give us facts. Mm. We have to make them out of the raw material of, 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 of perception and sensation. What about those people who, perhaps mathematicians, who would say that, well, okay, we, we do discover mathematical laws, mm -hmm. but they do have to be there for us to discover them? Mathematical laws are that what ma I mean, mathematics is nothing more than the systematic development of our of our in, of our inbuilt habits of thought. Hmm. They belong to the human mind. They don't belong to the world. I mean, does one plus one equal two? Well, that depends. One apple plus one apple does it equal two apples? Well, it depends on the size of the apples, no, doesn't it? Mm, I guess so. You see, there's we we. Mathematics is certain because it's abstract. It's certain because it doesn't actually relate to the world. It's simply our natural habits of thought systematized and developed in, uh, you know, in all of these com complex and self-consistent ways. Logic is the same way. The world is not logical, but our minds are logical. Mm -hmm. Okay. And at a certain point from this unmanifest, in relation to this logic forming before any of this... Something mm -hmm. just starts to move, which seems to me to go back to someone. Probably the easiest person would be Lucretius in mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Delarum Natura, right? The the mm -hmm. the Clinum. Mm -hmm. Like at a certain point, yeah, something just starts to move. Something just starts to move. Yeah, I'm I'm quite sure that Fortune was had that in mind. Mm -hmm. Had that specific. Yes, yeah, something swerves. <laughs> And in this case, spaces. Because, again, remember, these symbols are meant to train the mind, <laughs> not to inform it. It is not that if we had a time machine and can look back at the beginning of things, we'd look, space start, look at space and it would, wow, it's starting to move. Imagine interstellar space, totally empty, totally vast, limitless, black. And then imagine a portion of the space starting to flow like water. Imagine it flowing off and gradually curving around until it turns into this vast circle of flowing space, gradually picking up speed and gradually drawing more space into it. That's not what happened. That's, that is a fact in the literal sense. We make that image mm. to try to make sense of things. And that first ring is the ring cosmos. That is the ring cosmos. The, that becomes... The sort of the, the the angle, if you will, metaphorically speaking, around which we can create a world that makes sense. That's the angle of existence. And then that flow of space sets another flow going outside it in at, at right angles to it. And that becomes the ring chaos. That's the that represents everything that we can't make sense of, everything that's outside our universe. Can we bring that in? Why not? Because it because it's defined. It, we, we you can okay. <laughs> In order to make sense of anything, you have to not make sense of something. Mm -hmm. In order to see the sky as blue, you have to stop seeing the sky as orange. Uh, okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. You, in order to. In order to say one plus one equals two, you're giving up the, the possibility that one plus one equals one. Even though if you, this lump of, of clay, this lump of clay, you put them together, you have one lump of clay, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so basically, the, the ring chaos is that which is excluded. Mm -hmm. 
Is is that is that limitation placed there by solely by ourselves? Um, well, it's it depends on how you want to interpret this set of metaphors. Mm, Okay. Um, who you know, whoever or whatever starts the space in motion, guarantees that there will be these other things that are left out. These other things that become the representation of the unmanifest for those who are inside the ring cosmos. So we have the ring cosmos, easiest way to visualize it is the ring spinning vertically, and then we have the ring mm-hmm. chaos at a right angle. At a right sp- angle. Spin- spinning outside of it, and then mm-hmm. from this is from the, the, the ring passed on. The ring passed on, because the ring cosmos begins to tilt. Why? And so this is what happens when the ring cosmos, you know, when you try to include the the ring chaos in the ring cosmos you set the ring chaos the ring cosmos spinning and so it starts to rotate and its its rotation is defining the boundary between the two rings and that's the ring past not that's the limit of the conceivable that's the limit of the knowable and and everything outside it represents the unmanifest to the dwellers within that that ring cosmos everything inside it is the cosmos is the universe it's everything they can conceive of mm. and this spinning obviously the so the ring chaos stays still as mm-hmm. these two rings interlock like in a full, if you're looking at it as a symbol it would be fully vertical this mm-hmm. uh sort of manufactures our day night cycle correct mm-hmm. And it also manufactures the broader cycles of every cycle echoes that every cycle can be seen as a, as represented by that symbol, mm. which is meant to train the mind and not to inform it. Basically, every you have this movement toward um, increased complexity, increased diversity toward the edge of chaos. And then everything gradually draws back together as the two as the two discs move to right angles again. And so we have this whole cycle by which things unfold and decline and rise and fall and expand and contract. And all of this is represented by the turning of the, of the, of the ring, ring cosmos within the ring chaos. Where's all that go? Where does the, where's that going? Is there, a, is there a final reason for all of this? No, it's just the way things are. What about for man? Um, we, we have a lot, I mean, before we get to human beings, we are, have a lot of territory <laughs> to cover. And, um, human beings also in, within the worldview of the Cosdoc, if we want to take to, you know, to plunge down from these vast cosmic, um, things to activities on this one world within this one solar system, within the seventh, um, you know, the seventh cosmic plane, blah, blah, blah. Um, we have a long way to go. Mm. We have, you know, we, are, we have not yet even finished the infancy of our existence as individual beings. And so there's a, there's a lot of room left for us. There's a, mm. lot of, a lot of activity, a lot of learning and growing and developing that still awaits us. And as far as the, you know, the vast cosmic destiny, blah, 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 you know, as though we could understand it. Mm-hmm. And this is just the bit that absolutely fascinates me because on this absolutely abstract level from cosmos chaos and past not develop an understanding of good and evil which to me is really practical. Mm-hmm. But there's two types of evil. There are two types of evil. There's negative evil and there's positive evil. And negative evil is the one that comes out of the out of the spinning of the rings. Okay. Um for the ring 
cosmos, the ring chaos, is, is negative evil. Within the rings, evil is resistance. Evil is the thrust block. It's the thing you have to push against. That's the thing that keeps the ring spinning because it's constantly being attracted and pushing off against this, this, this lump of, of resistance in the, in the cosmos. Um, the reason that runners have these blocks that they start on so they can go you know, running off is that if you have that resistance, it's easy to get a good solid start. Um, the reason that propellers work in air and water is that they can work with the resistance of the air or the water to bring things in motion. If you have no resistance, imagine there you are on a perfectly smooth sheet of wet ice um, and you have foot, your foot gear is as slick as glass. You're stuck. You can scramble all day and night. You're still there in the middle of, you know, in the middle of the ice because there's no resistance. There's nothing you can push against. Mm-hmm. The unfortunate vision is the evil, negative evil, is what we have to push against. It's the, it is the resistance of the cosmos that makes it possible for us to get into motion. Mm-hmm. And that's as true for you and me as it is for the cosmos as a whole, as it, tr- as it is for the solar system and the solar logos at its center, and so on, you know, up and down as far as you care to go. Evil is resistance. We, we, may, we mistake evil for a positive force. And that's where e- that, that is where positive evil comes from, where people are actually engaging in evil acts. They're trying to harmonize with and flow with this negative, negative evil instead of pushing off from it. Instead of saying, oh, okay, this is a thrust block, I'm going to push off against it and go someplace more interesting. Mm. And that begets more evil. So you, you mm-hmm. actually draw this into sort of like political notions to bring it really mm-hmm. that, that when, yeah, to bring it really down to the human sphere. But I mean, I guess this is one of those sort of laws which is in everything as a mm-hmm. symbol, just to emphasize mm-hmm. that again. Mm-hmm. But this notion, this thing that people have these days of if, if, some, if I don't like A, then I have to be B and react against it. But it, the mm-hmm. under, from the from Fortune's understanding in the in the cosmic doctrine, that merely begets this evil even more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you want, if you want to keep something you hate permanently in place, fight it. <laughs> what what you hate, you imitate. What you what you resist persists. And so, I mean. Just to, to pull out an obvious example, Donald Trump would have been completely forgotten a long time ago if so many people hadn't been so busy shrieking their hatred at him. Mm. They gave him power. They've given him, they've given him charisma. Among other things, everybody that dislikes the shrieking people is going to gravitate toward Donald Trump because he trolls them so gracefully. Mm. Okay. If you actually want to get rid of something, you open up an empty space around it and let it run its course. It will go straight out to um, the ring pass knot and dissolve into nothingness. Let me okay. let me just before you go go on because I can already hear mm-hmm. I can already hear the comments section. So can I. Um, so can I. So we might as well use this example, John. What about Hitler? Would you have just? Yeah, what you have what just, about you... the Nazis? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm glad we we're on the same same wavelength. Uh-huh. You'd have just let him do it. No, no, you see, no, no. You're creating an empty space around the energy. You are not allowing it to get the things. Mm. Now, if one of one of one of the interesting things, 
one of the interesting details of, of um, the history of 20th century Europe is that Nazi Germany, economically speaking, was a basket case. Mm. The only reason it was able to keep going was that it was able to keep on expanding and invading and burning through more raw materials, more resources, more money, because there, the economic policies of the Third Reich were a disaster area. Mm. Uh, among other things, they were spending a lot of money to keep you know, um, German, the German working class happy that they didn't have. And so if the West could have figured out how to do roughly the same thing we ended up having the, the wits to do with communism and just maintain the boundaries, maintain the, the pressure, and let it pop, mm. um, Hitler's regime probably would have imploded by 1941 or 1942. What did we do instead? If they could, yeah. If, if for example, um, Chamberlain had um, demonstrated had a little backbone, and instead of um, crumpling to Hitler at the Munich conferences, had pushed back hard, um, you know, if there if there had been a war, it would have been over much more quickly, mm-hmm. because the, the Germans hadn't had a chance to build up anything like the same kind of the same kind of force. So yeah, you can you can actually stop evil more effectively by simply. Preventing it from achieving its, from, from from having its outreach, creating the vacuum around it, and letting it run through its changes until it burns out. Now, you mentioned that among other things, um, Dion Fortune fought the Nazis. She did. If you happen to be an occultist, or at least are aware of the realities that occultists work with, you probably know that the Nazis were up to their eyeballs in magic. Mm-hmm. Um, they. <laughs> It's this is it's it's really amusing to watch um, mainstream historians try to insist that wasn't the case. Um, Hitler's one of Hitler's uh, one of one of his friends in when he was hanging out in Vienna um, has written at length about this this weird grab bag of books he was always reading. It's a classic occult reading list. Mm. We know he was associated with one of the the Ariosophical magical groups in Vienna at the time. One of the the sort of racist offshoot of theosophy that ended up becoming central to Nazi party ideology. Um, Himmler was an occultist. Um, Hess was an occultist. There were a lot of them. And they were doing, they, they were doing stuff with their magical practices to, with the intention of, you know, furthering this, this crazed goal of Germany conquering the world. And fortune was central in organizing br- the British occult scene, not to push back, but to use her own techniques and cause their energy to simply miss, mm-hmm. cause their energy to fail to reach its goal by strengthening the group mind of Britain. There's there's a very nice book edited by um, the late Gareth Knight, um, The Magical Battle of Britain. And one of the things she talks about is why it's a really bad idea to try to like fight the other side. Strengthen your side mm. and let the other side implode as it will. That was how she fought it. Mm. And, and you notice which side won. There were other reasons for that, doubtless, but still, you notice which side won. I want to. I also want to just draw on this notion of like this friction, this this persist. I think mm-hmm. you know, this inner persistence, whether or not you, basically this notion of having energy. And I want to draw this down to the individual person because mm-hmm. uh, reading. I just I think of Meister Eckhart, who I've been reading recently, and he, he got in a little mm-hmm. trouble because some of his sermons would be titled entitled, you know, why what why it's good to sin, right, or why it's good to have a <laughs> sin, right. And you think Meister seriously. 
stop shooting yourself in the foot. It's <laughs> just retitle it and explain it in a different way. You're going to get yourself killed. Um, mm-hmm. But this, th- there's a, I think there's a nuance here in individual um, action, which is important. Which is like, and I think sin is a good example of. There's a there's a huge mm-hmm. difference between just pushing the sin away, in the sense mm-hmm. of just I guess just pushing the energy of the ring chaos away. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually going, right, you know what? I've got to deal with this. Mm-hmm. Um, and one way is difficult, but it prog- like, but progressive. And the other mm-hmm. way, I think the, pro- the thing that people th- believe is, and I think it's one of the most dangerous beliefs imaginable, is that just because you push it away, the energy is gone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's where, yeah. that's, you know, of all the laws we know of everything, uh, things don't just go. <laughs> Things, yeah, there is there is no such place as away. It <laughs> but can't when, go but John, away. When there I, is no. When I flush my toilet, what? when I flush my toilet, it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> talk to the talk to mm. the mystic plumber. Let him enlighten you. <laughs> mm, mm. So, but that's my question. The difference between oh, yeah. those things, what happens to mm-hmm. it? Um, in fact, we, we know exactly what happens when people convince themselves they can just not think about the thing, the, the, the sinful thought. Um, they end up enacting it in some roundabout way. Mm-hmm. This is called the return of the repressed. Uh, we are talking about, about Freud and psychotherapy a while back. Um, if you want to know why the the religious communities that are so focused on how sex is bad have such a bad problem with people you know getting caught up in various sexual frenzies or deviance that's why you can't just shove it aside because it doesn't go anywhere it's still there i I honestly think the, the christian teachings were were trying to get this across with that line about how all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of god and so forth what they're saying is it's there Okay, these these things that we are calling sinful, you are not going to get rid of them. They are a permanent part of who you are. You cannot just pretend to be, you know, you cannot just say, I am virtuous. <laughs> I have no such feelings. I have conquered these feelings. And now let me at the choir boys or what have you, you know. <laughs> it, it reliably doesn't work. If instead you grapple with that, you say, okay, these drives exist. How am I going to thrust off them? How am I going to use those energies in a way that does not involve doing the thing that I don't want to do? Mm. And so, you know, and there are many options. The, among other things, the cause doc talks about way of, ways of doing that. It talks about it in very symbolic forms. But um, the, I mentioned a book project of mine, um, the entire practice of, of polarity magic which was one of the things that Fortune and her co-workers in the Fraternity of the Inner Light developed in great detail. Basically, using the, using the experience of sexual desire in a situation where, for whatever reason, you're not going to act on it. Hmm. You can use that as a source of energy for magic and for various kinds of personal transformative processes, and you can do it fully clothed and never actually engaging in sexual activity. And so there, you're not just pretending it doesn't exist. You're saying, okay, you know, I have the hots for this person, and I'm going to accept that I have the hots for this person. That doesn't mean I'm going to act, I'm going to act on that desire, but I'm going to put the desire to work. 
Yeah. Uh, that, I mean, that was done. That, that's been done for for a very long time. The you know the young knight who was supposed to um, idolize some woman and and um, you know and, and imagine her passing judgment on his every action. Um, that was a powerful goad to him to straighten up his act and be the very perfect gentle knight, um, and you know to be brave and chivalrous and all this kind of stuff. That's what that was about. Mm. It's taking that desire and putting it to, putting it to use on what, in magical terms, we would call a different plane. Mm-hmm. And we are we are pretty we're pretty limited though on our, our our planes, right? So in relation to what we've the foundation we've described so far of this mm-hmm. uh, fortunes cosmos, there is then the rays which fall down through the planes. Mm-hmm. And we are we're you know we're we'd like to focus on ourselves, right? We're pretty we're pretty in there. We're pretty limited within the system. Yeah, say, the system this, it, within. Exactly. We are, you know, we're one batch of souls in one kind of body on one planet in one solar system on the seventh cosmic plane, and there's a lot else going on in the cosmos. We pass in and out of the 12 rays as, as, our, as our metaphoric solar system circles the metaphoric central sun, etc., etc. And what's interesting for me, theologically speaking, is that fortune understands this, and, and Christianity is completely right throughout work i mean i would consider almost an esoteric christian oh she was but she was christ becomes the contextual god Mm -hmm. of this limitation Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the her Christian. Well, the thing is, there were there were a lot of different. There, there are many, many more kinds of Christians out there than you will find admitted to in you know an, an Anglican sermon. And Fortune was one of them. Um, she you know she had she had picked up from Rosicrucian um, circles the idea that you know the the the, the solar logos the. The, is the logos of you know the second person of the Christian Trinity, mm-hmm. and that the 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 divine power within the Son is Christ, and that was the power that was incarnate in Galilee, you know, and so on and so forth, and that, um, you know, I, I don't believe this is considered widely considered orthodox, you know, orthodox teaching these days, mm-hmm. but that was that was her view of things, and it's something that that a lot of Rosicrucian teachers have taught actually down through the through the years, and. So basically, yeah, we are we are um, participants in this this creation of the logos that we call the solar system, and we are participants in the broader cosmos, which which is manifested from the central sun, which would be in effect God the Father within this within this particular theology, and we're not the be all and end all of the cosmos. Again, we're one set of souls in one kind of bodies on one planet within the solar system this particular solar logos you know um, rules and governs it has brought into being and so yeah there's a lot of limitation there but at the same time it you know it's a very big cosmos and one of the things that i know a lot of a lot of people have had trouble with in tr- traditional christianity is the tendency of traditional christianity to fo- to act as though this is the only world where there is and humans are the only human souls are the only souls that matter and you know the god of galaxies is absolutely fixated on this one lump small lump of rock in one corner of an out-of-the-way galaxy. What would you say to those that say that that position is sort of defendable, considering there isn't really a common knowledge of anyone else? Mm-hmm. Um, one can defend it all one wants, but um, you know, I'm, I'm, sh- I'm sure the claim can be made. 
you know, human, again, the human mind can contextualize, can conceptualize the world however it wants. Um, I don't argue about theology. It doesn't make much sense. You know, that, that approach does not appeal to me. It does not make sense to me. Mm-hmm. If it does appeal to someone else, if it makes sense to them, you know, among other things, in Fortune's vision, that's fine, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One of the differences between, the sort of, between Christian Orthodoxy and some of these other beliefs is that within the occult tradition, within Dion Fortune's tradition, you're not, it's not a matter of you get one life and then you pass, have to pass a multiple choice test on, on theology, and that determines whether you go to heaven or whether you get the divine boot in the face forever. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a matter, you know, we are all in this process of spiritual growth and development, and it, there are certainly um, right choices and wrong choices, and there, wears, there are ways you can land yourself in a world of hurt for a very long time. But it's not a matter of adherence to the right ideology. Mm. And so what your opinion is about a set of things about which human beings cannot know is not actually that important. Mm. So she, she would, uh, be- she believed in reincarnation? Oh yes, very much so. Mm. Um, she, she believed and taught, believed in and taught it. Mm. And the thing is, there's a lot of esoteric Christians who do that. Mm. And yes, I know, yes, I know that that conflicts with, with orthodoxy, but it's one of those, one of those little things we all deal with. Go on. Well, no, I was only going to ask, I mean, the the typical response to that is how can you synthesize, uh, re, you know, the singular reincarnation of a singular soul with reincarnation. Now, I I know certain ways in which Rodney Collins, Mm -hmm. Rodney Collin wrote a great book on this mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. actually you stay the same soul, but you repeat your life over and over and over again until you become what we would know as enlightened, which I think is, I think is the most theologically consistent way of doing that. Or you, or you can, you can, you simply have to reconceptualize the concept of the, the concept of what it was that Christ brought into manifestation. And there, are, and what it was that his that his life was about, that his incarnation was about. Um, Rudolf Steiner has some comments along those lines, which I think are actually fairly close to to fortunes. The idea that you know that Christ was here to take on the sins of the world, not necessarily those of each individual, but there was a total, a sum total of of deviation from the right path that had to be in fortunes term abreacted. It had to be dealt with, and that's what happened on on, on Calvary. And that in the wake of that, those people who were um, able and willing to align themselves with the new influx that came in with Christ were, you know, sped up in their in the process of spiritual evolution and so on. And on we go. Mm. There's actually quite a consistent theology there. It differs rather significantly from the, from the soteriology and the concept of salvation that you hear in, in traditional Christian writings. But that yes it's different we get mm-hmm. you know i get that we get that mm-hmm. so were there were there other gods in for i guess within our personal context are there other gods of course christ holds this contextual place for fortune and then mm-hmm. i guess the christian god i mean at that point it does trans- that the, what we call what christians would call god would be like the, the well i don't know for fortune mm-hmm. 
it becomes that's that's where it becomes complex. Mm. Um, for one of the things that, that one of the things you find in Fortune is a is a very specific distinction. Her Christology was a particular kind. She argued that, or she she said that um, Jesus is a person, Christ is a principle. Don't confuse them. Okay, um, Jesus is the master of masters. The Christ is um, one of the three ba- basic cosmic cr- cosmic principles who was incarnated and manifest in the initiate Jesus of Nazareth, mm-hmm. and and so God God is a complicated label. Mm-hmm. There is a very real sense in which the solar logos is God; it's the God of the solar system. Um, there is a sense in which the central sun is the God of of this cosmos. And um, yet she also wrote about pagan gods and goddesses at rather some length, but put them on a different plane. Mm-hmm. And she, she as, as, you know, as you'd expect, you know, working with, the, with these entities, came, offered various hypotheses as to what they were. But again, like the masters, what we know is that these things manifest. What they are is a more complex matter. And so she, as a as a um, an active Anglican Christian, somebody you would find at her local parish church of a Sunday, um, was also performing you know rituals of you know rites of Isis and Pan to try to help people um, help manifest the masculine and feminine energies in a less completely messed up way than was common in Britain during the war or between the two wars. Mm-hmm. So. There are times when she argued that the the, the gods of paganism were um, basically constructs of, of mass human of collective human imagination. Mm-hmm. There were times when you get the sense that maybe she thought of them as sort of masks of the divine. She was in her own way a monotheist, but a very strange monotheist. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that you mentioned the collective imagination. So you actually mentioned Jung earlier about his notion of mm-hmm. symbols aren't aren't ever these fixed things. And um, this is very key for this cosmic vision is that really mm-hmm. uh, what we might consider to be the collective imagination or the collective unconscious is here for mm-hmm. fortune. You know, mm-hmm. everything mm-hmm. is remembered. Everything is remembered. Yes. Basically, within the, within the substance of, of the cosmos, every action leaves a trace. Once you set space flowing and every action you do, every thought you think, every word you speak, sets space in motion. And it doesn't stop because space is frictionless. Mm. And so if you repeat a certain action, a certain thought, a certain pattern of speaking over and over again, it lays down what she would refer to as a track in space, and w- which tends to develop its own momentum. And people, other people can add to it, and other actions, other thoughts, other words will flow along with that. Um, if, you're all fam- if you're at all familiar with Rupert Sheldrake, with his uh, new science of life and his stuff on morphogenetic fields. That's basically what he's talking about. And I have wondered for quite some time now whether uh, Sheldrake actually studied the cosmic doctrine because there's a lot of parallels between, between his vision and, and fortunes. Mm-hmm. So is there anything you'd like to add about uh, your commentary or the cosmic doctrine that you feel is key that we've... Uh... Sure. Basically, 
basically the the entire idea of a commentary on on a book that's something that's largely dropped out of use except with some novels i mean there there i have a very nice annotated copy of the annotated hobbit that basically is commentary on 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 the adventures of bilbo baggins but it used to be very common that you would have for an important book you would have volumes of commentary on it most of the the dialogues of plato back in the day had had volumes of commentary you get proclus's commentary on the timaeus let's say and so you read timaeus and you check what proclus had to say about it and it seemed it seemed to me and it seems to me equally now that that's something that's extremely useful especially for a book like the cosdoc that was written in an earlier time that has assumptions and um, presuppositions that maybe are not so transparent these days and that also assumes that the reader has certain kinds of background that most people don't have now mm-hmm. and so um, that was my first venture into the field of, of commentary. And it seems, to be, it seems to be doing fairly well. There was a lot of people who were very interested in it. I'm currently working, of course, on an, a more extended project, a commentary on um, Eliphas Levy's um, The Doctrine and Ritual of High Magic. And that's, that's developing in the same way. And it's, this, this is something that I think is worth reviving the habit of, of commenting on, of developing a detailed discussion of, okay, what does this book actually say? Mm-hmm. So that's what I tried to do. That's what, that's what a commentary on the cause doc is. Mm. So you're, and you're now working on a commentary on Levy or is that uh, something in the future? That's Levy. No, that's, no, that's still, that's in process. It's currently appearing on, on a monthly basis in, on my blog. And it's, we've got about another two years to go. <laughs> Of monthly posts, it's 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 forty four chapters plus actually forty six counting the two introductions, and so um, it's it, it's not an easy thing. Mm-hmm. And then when that's finished, circumstances permitting, I'll be going on and doing um, the plan is to do um, Yeats's A Vision, mm-hmm. and do a commentary on that, and that should be fun. Well, I've recently received a, a world world full of gods, so hopefully mm-hmm. I'll read that soon, and we can book in another discussion. But I would uh, I would look forward to it. What What else are you working on? Because I know you've always what? you're always working. Okay, I, I I always have lots of stuff. Well, I'm working I'm working right now on a book on polarity magic, mm-hmm. um, that will be that will be presenting, not exactly. You know, I mean, the specific techniques of polarity magic that Fortune worked out within the fraternity of the inner light. It's now the Society for the Inner Light. They have their own secret archives, and um, they save that stuff for their senior students, as they have every right to do. I learned some some ways to do the same thing, from, which were not secret, and so basically I'm presenting a manual of learning magic. Um, we'll see how that goes. Um, let's see. So I have that in process. I have um, one that I have just just finished um, page proofs on. Um, my my recent book, the Occult Philosophy Workbook, has a sequel, which is the Earth Mysteries Workbook. Be interesting to see how that one comes comes along. And of course, I'm continuing with the new fiction series, the um, Occult Detective Stories, featuring 18 um, year old Ariel Moravec and her her occultist grandfather, Dr. Bernard Moravec. Um, the second one of those is in, is in at the publisher right now. The third one is being written. A good time is being had. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well. Once again, John-Michael Greer, it's, uh, I'll be sure to put the uh, links for a commentary on the Cosmic Doctrine in the description below. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's been great. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it.